A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think, but it is to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. I'm not here to make you afraid or to make you angry or to fill you with righteous anger and hatred at the people who really deserve it. But I do want you to be more sure of who you are and what you stand for at the end of the day. So pull up a chair, come and revel in wrong think, find courage and camaraderie with your fellow defenders of freedom. And uh, if you if you have the inclination, please check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find a nice little section there paying tribute to a lot of wonderful sponsors who helped make this program possible. Well, I want to dive right in today and tell you, I have some good news. I'm going to say this like dessert. <laughs> you eat your broccoli first, and then we'll save the good news for later. But um, one of the best articles that I have seen from a writer whose writing I have really come to appreciate over the last year or so. The writer is C.J. Hopkins. And I'll tell you right up front, this is not a warm, fuzzy kind of article that's going to make you just go, oh, wow, that's, puppies are cute. <laughs> this, is, this is some pretty hard, straight-up truth. But it's the kind of truth that we really need to be facing. And uh, I, don't, I don't think I have seen uh, a more clear warning about what we are facing. And by we, I'm talking about the, uh, the resistors, the, the unvaccinated, the, the people who refuse to get in line and march in lockstep with, uh, with everybody else and to, to do exactly what uh, the members of the political class and their enablers are demanding of us. Now, some people are going to try to explain this away as well. You guys are just antisocial or you're just, you know, you're pathologically, you know, opposed to any any kind of authority. I think they actually have come up with a new mental disorder, oppositional defiant disorder. Odd. (laughs) We're odd because we we won't do what authority tells us without uh, without there being a darn good reason. But it's worth hearing what C.J. Hopkins has to say. His article is about resisting pathologized totalitarianism wait till you hear this and i think you'll understand this is this is not you know the ravings of a madman who's looking for an excuse to to bring violence out this sounds like the warning of someone who is paying very close attention who sees what's happening and at the risk of making people feel uncomfortable you know or confronting them with an idea that many are really not ready to to face is going to sound that warning anyway so I, I just got to tell you, there's some straight up unsugarcoated truth straight ahead here. I think it's worth it. C.J. Hopkins says the final phase of its transformation of society into a pathologized totalitarian dystopia where mandatory genetic therapy injections and digital compliance papers are commonplace is now officially underway. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty strong opening line, but at least we are left wondering, hey, where's uh, where's C.J. Hopkins coming from on this on this issue? He says on November 19th of 2021, the government of new normal Austria decreed that as of February, experimental mRNA injections will be mandatory for the entire population. 
Now, this decree comes in the midst of Austria's official persecution of the unvaccinated. In other words, political dissidents or other persons of conscience who refuse to convert to the new official ideology and submit to a series of mRNA injections purportedly to combat a virus that causes mild to moderate flu-like symptoms for no symptoms or no symptoms at all in about 95% of the infected. And the overall infection fatality rate, which is approximately 0.1% to 0.5%. By the way, these he backs these up with links to the articles that uh, that will show you that, you know, these aren't just numbers he's pulling out of thin air. Isn't it odd? Or can I just ask you to consider? Isn't it strange that uh, that fear seems to be the governing dynamic from those in power? Well, you know, you need to be really afraid. You should you should be super careful. In fact, you should really think twice about even hanging with your family because that's how dangerous this all is. Now, if I could just take a quick tangent for a moment. You may have family members who are, you know, at risk. And it could be because uh, maybe they're going through chemotherapy, so their immune system is compromised, or maybe they have various uh, comorbidities, heart disease, diabetes, and so forth, obesity, things that they're dealing with. But what about the healthy people? What about kids? What about young people? Yeah, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And C.J. Hopkins is pointing out here, Austria and what they are doing, which, which seems extreme, even, even by the standards that we've been living under for the last couple of years, it's just the tip of the new normal spear. Prominent new normal fascists in Germany, he writes, uh, like De Fuhrer of Bavaria, Marcus Soder, and Minister of Propaganda Karl Lauterbach, are already calling for, oh, my German is not good, Allgemeine Impfpflicht, I don't know, compulsory vaccination requirements. That's what they're calling for, which should not come as a surprise to anyone. C.J. Hopkins, who, by the way, lives in Germany, says the Germans are not going to sit idly by and let the Austrians publicly out-fascist them, are they? They have a reputation to uphold, after all, and Italy will probably be next to join in unless Lithuania or Australia beats them to the punch. But seriously, he says, this is just the beginning of the winter siege I wrote about recently. I actually shared that article on the program, and this is the one where he says, folks, those of you who have made up your mind, you are not going to be bowed, you know, or cowed into, you know, giving in to getting the vaccine, even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you friendships, even if it costs you relationships with family members. He said, we have to settle in for a long winter and we need to very carefully prepare and just hang on till April. Why does he say wait until April? Well, because we're in the midst of cold and flu season. Okay, it's normal during cold months when people are inside in close proximity for there to be higher incidence of colds, flu, yes, even COVID. But that's going to be milked. <laughs> it's going to be used as leverage to get people to submit to even more outrageous things. So we got to be careful. He says the plan seems to be to new normalize Europe first, because generally speaking, Europeans are more docile, more respectful of all authority, and of course not very well armed. And then they'll use that as leverage to force the new pathologized totalitarian on the USA and the UK and the rest of the world. Now that sounds pretty dark, right? I mean, that sounds pretty... uh, pretty scary. But C.J. Hopkins says, look, I don't believe this plan will succeed. 
in spite of the longest, most intensive propaganda pro, uh, propaganda campaign in the history of propaganda, there remain enough of us who steadfastly refuse to accept the new normal as our new reality. And this next part's really interesting because he says, and a lot of us are angry, extremely angry, militantly, explosively angry. Now, he goes a little deeper into an explanation of this anger and says, look, we're not vaccine hesitant or anti-vax or COVID denying conspiracy theorists. We are millions of regular working class people, people with principles who value freedom, who are not prepared to go gently into the globalized, pathologized totalitarian night. And we no longer give the slightest crap whether our former friends and family members who've gone new normal understand what this is. We do. We understand exactly what this is. It is a nascent form of totalitarianism, and we intend to kill it, or at least critically wound it, before it matures into a full-grown behemoth. Now, he says, I want to be absolutely clear. I am not advocating or condoning violence, but it's going to happen. It's happening already. Totalitarianism, even this pathologized version of it, is imposed on society and maintained with violence. So fighting totalitarianism inevitably entails violence. He says, it's not my preferred tactic in the current circumstances, but it's unavoidable now that we've reached this stage. And he says, it's important that those those of us fighting this fight recognize that violence is a natural response to the violence and the threat, the implied threat of violence being deployed against us by the new normal authorities and the masses they whip up into a fanatical frenzy. Now, he says it's also essential, I would argue, to make the violence of the new normal visible. In other words, to frame this fight in political terms and not in the pseudo-medical terms propagated by the official COVID narrative. This isn't an academic argument over the existence, severity, or response to a virus. This is a fight to determine the future of our societies. Now, I don't know if that sounds like, you know, the, the ravings of a madman. Oh, you guys are all crazy. You're all out of your heads. You're all paranoid for thinking these kind of things. To me, what C.J. Hopkins is saying here, this is one of the most common sense, you know, reality-based assessments that I've seen. And I know it's, it's, it's unpleasant news. I don't thrill to it either, but I think he's right. And I'm going to ask you to hang on a little bit longer and consider the rest of his message when we delve back into it, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, also, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also, LifesavingFood.com and MonticelloCollege.org. I'm sharing with you an article from C.J. Hopkins, and it's uh, called Pathologized Totalitarianism. And this is one of the most no-nonsense, no-BS analysis of what it is that we're facing, not just here in America, but worldwide as the political class looks to impose 
whatever it is they're trying to impose on us. It's look, the vaccine mandates and and all of the covid lockdown stuff. For some people, this is just the most necessary thing in the world because they are legitimately afraid that uh, they're going to die or they're going to infect somebody and cause somebody to die. And it's it's true that there is there is a virus out there, apparently a man-made virus that we know is COVID-19. And it does some pretty weird, funky stuff, and it is risky to certain people, particularly if you're above the age of 70. If you have one or more comorbidities, it can be bad news for you. But for the majority of the population, we're talking 99-plus percent of the population, it's not that dangerous of a virus, but we act as if this is the worst thing ever. And in the last two years, if you just consider... How much people have given up their freedom, how much they have given up their ability to so much as make a living at the behest of the political class. Look, there can be no doubt that the costs to society far outweighed any benefit of all the mask mandates, the lockdowns, now the mandatory vaccinations with people losing their jobs because they refuse to take the needle. Those costs have been immense. And if you could point to, well, you know, the people who have taken the vaccine, look, look at this, you know, the, the rate of the spread of this, uh, this disease has gone way down. Why, in fact, it's almost stopped, but it hasn't. In fact, the vaccine is, uh, people who are vaccinated are, are <clears throat> experiencing breakthrough, you know, infections. They're the ones who are ending up sick and in the hospital and dying. It's not doing what we were told it would do. And yet there's this maniacal insistence on the part of leaders at every level of society. Everybody has to take this. Everybody. They're even trying to open this up to children. Soon we'll be vaccinating infants with this. And yet you have to have boosters now. And and boosters are part of being fully vaccinated. And we're creating a, a kind of medical apartheid where if you don't have the vaccination credentials, well, you're not allowed to buy gas from us. You're not allowed to shop here. You can't eat here. You can't work here. I've never seen anything in my lifetime that even comes close to comparing to this. And when when you see that it is backed by implied violence or sometimes real violence... The people who found themselves arrested for watching a sunset, you know, from their cars or for playing with their kids on a playground last year can tell you that threat of violence was not just, oh, you do what you're told. It was, no, they ended up in handcuffs. They went to jail. They ended up, you know, going to court. And in some cases are still fighting these battles in court. So when C.J. Hopkins says, look, the, the violence is being deployed against us by the new normal authorities, the people who are trying to make this the standard frame of reference for us. He says it's important to make the violence of the new normal visible. In other words, to frame this fight in political terms, not the pseudo-medical terms propagated by the official COVID narrative. Because this isn't just an academic argument over the existence, severity, or the response to a virus. What we are seeing right now is a fight to determine the future of our societies. And he says, this fact above all is what the global capitalist ruling classes are determined to conceal. The rollout of the new normal will fail if it's perceived as political. In other words, just a form of totalitarianism. So they're relying on our inability to see it as what it is. So it hides itself and the violence it perpetrates within a pseudo-medical official narrative, rendering itself immune to political opposition. 
And he says, we need to deny it, this perceptual redoubt, this, this uh, hermeneutic hiding place. We need to make it show itself as what it is. And that is a pathologized form of totalitarianism. But in order to do that, we need to understand it, its internal logic, its strengths, and its weaknesses. Now, C.J. Hopkins says, look, I've been describing the new normal as pathologized totalitarianism and predicting that compulsory vaccination was coming since as early as May of 2020. He's right, by the way. He, he called this. This is one of the reasons why I consider him actually one of the better sources on this subject. And he says, I still use the term totalitarianism intentionally, not for effect, but for the sake of accuracy. The new normal is still a nascent totalitarianism, but its essence is unmistakably evident. And I described that essence in a recent column where he said the essence of totalitarianism, regardless of which costumes and ideology it wears, is a desire to completely control society, every aspect of society, every individual behavior and thought, every totalitarian system, whether an entire nation, a tiny cult or any other form of social body evolves towards this unachievable toward this unachievable goal the total ideological transformation and control of every single element of society. This fanatical pursuit of total control, absolute ideological uniformity, and the elimination of all dissent is what makes totalitarianism totalitarianism. Now, back in October of 2020, he published an article, The Covidian Cult, which has since grown into a series of essays examining new normal, in other words, pathologized totalitarianism, as a cult writ large on a societal scale. And I'm just going to give this as an aside. That may sound like loaded language. Hey, he's name calling. He's saying they're like cultists. But, I mean, what else do you call it? When, when, you, put, when you put something above reality itself, number one, it's a, it's a form of modern idolatry, but this is also what cults require of, of their adherents. You must ignore reality and you must believe, you know, what uh, the dogma of the cult is. So I think I think the analogy holds true for all forms of totalitarianism, especially for new total new normal totalitarianism, which is the first global form of this in history. And thus CJ Hopkins writes the cult culture paradigm has been inverted. Instead of the cult existing as an island within the dominant culture, the cult has become the dominant culture. And those of us who have not joined the cult have become the isolated islands within it. Well, that should certainly ring true to a lot of people who have made a stand and said, I'm not going to give in. In the essay, The Covidian Cult, Part 3, he noted, in order to oppose this new form of totalitarianism, we need to understand how it both resembles and differs from earlier totalitarian systems. Now, the similarities are fairly obvious. In other words, the suspension of constitutional rights, governments ruling by decree, official propaganda, public loyalty rituals, the outlawing of political opposition, censorship, social segregation, goon squads terrorizing the public, and so on. But the differences are not as obvious. And he says, I described how the new normal totalitarianism fundamentally differs from the 20th century totalitarianism in terms of its ideology or seeming lack thereof. Whereas 20th century totalitarianism was much more or was more or less national and overtly political, the new normal totalitarianism is supranational and its ideology is much more subtle. That's because the new normal isn't Nazism or Stalinism. 
it's global capitalist totalitarianism, and global capitalism doesn't have an ideology, technically, or rather its ideology is reality. But he says the most significant difference between 20th century totalitarianism and this nascent global totalitarianism is how new normal totalitarianism pathologizes its political nature, effectively rendering itself invisible and thus immune to political opposition. Whereas 20th century totalitarianism wore its politics on its sleeve, new normal totalitarianism presents itself as a non-ideological, in other words, a supra-political reaction to a global public health emergency. It's pretty ingenious, but it does seem to be working. Going to come back to C.J. Hopkins' article, which you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention uh, lifesavingfood.com, one of my great sponsors here. And, you know, you may think I'm weird for suggesting such a thing, but you know what makes a really cool gift for the people on your gift-giving lists? Food storage. Preparedness supplies. This year, probably more than ever. You know, it, it might have been in the past people would get, you know, oh, what's this, a, a bucket of freeze-dried food? What's the, thanks. <laughs> you know, am I ever going to use this? But people who are paying attention, people who are watching food prices go up, people who are watching scarcity beginning to grow, people who are just looking to, to stand on their own two feet, they will appreciate your thoughtfulness if that's what you choose to give them. This would be a great time to make those orders. Go to the link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, that's uh, lifesavingfood.com. Use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, for the coupon code to save you 25%. That's a huge discount. It's just for my listeners. And it'd make, again, a great gift for the people on your list. So I'm sharing this article from C.J. Hopkins. This is a fairly lengthy essay about pathologized totalitarianism. And I hope you find this as fascinating as, as I do in the sense that the global totalitarianism that we're facing, this is not, you know, people wearing armbands, you know, that proclaim, hey, look, I got this swastika here. Now you know what I stand for. No, it's carefully hidden and presenting itself as a non-ideological reaction to a global public health emergency. And so he points out its classic totalitarian features, in other words, the revocation of basic rights and freedoms, centralization of power, rule by decree, oppressive policing of the population, demonization and persecution of a scapegoat underclass, censorship, propaganda, etc., are not hidden because they're impossible to hide, but they're recontextualized in a pathologized official narrative. So the untermenschen become the unvaccinated. Swastika lapel pins become medical-looking masks. Aryan ID papers become vaccination passes. Irrefutably senseless social restrictions and mandatory public obedience rituals become lockdowns or social distancing, and so on. He says the world is united in a Goebbelsian total war, as in Joseph Goebbels type total war, not against an external enemy or like a racial or political enemy, but against an internal pathological enemy. And this pathologized official narrative is more powerful and insidious than any ideology. 
as it functions not as a belief system or ethos, but as an objective reality. You cannot argue with, with or oppose reality. Reality has no political opponents. Those who challenge reality are insane, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, COVID deniers, extremists, etc. Thus, the pathologized new normal narrative also pathologizes its political opponents, simultaneously stripping us of political legitimacy and projecting its own violence onto us. Now, 20th century totalitarianism also blamed its violence on its scapegoats, Jews, socialists, counter-revolutionaries, etc. But it did not attempt to erase its violence. On the contrary, it displayed it openly in order to terrorize the masses. New normal totalitarianism can't do this. It can't go openly totalitarian because capitalism and totalitarianism are ideologically contradictory. Now, global capitalist ideology, he says, will not function as an official ideology in an openly totalitarian society. It requires the simulation of democracy, or at least a simulation of market-based freedom, in quotation marks. So a society can be intensely authoritarian, but to function in the global capitalist system, it must allow its people the basic freedom that capitalism offers to all consumers— the right or obligation to participate in the market, to own and exchange commodities, etc. Now, this freedom can be conditional or extremely restricted, but it must exist to some degree. Saudi Arabia and China are two examples of openly authoritarian global cap societies that are nevertheless not entirely totalitarian, because they can't be and remain a part of the system. So their advertised official ideologies, in other words, Islamic fundamentalism and communism, basically function as superficial overlays on the fundamental global capitalist ideology which dictates the reality in which everyone lives. And these overlay ideologies are not fake. But when they come into conflict conflict rather with global capitalist ideology, guess which ideology wins? So the point is, new normal totalitarianism and any global capitalist form of totalitarianism cannot display itself as totalitarianism. In fact, it can't even really display itself as authoritarianism. It can't acknowledge its political nature. In order to exist, it must not exist. And above all, it must erase its violence, and we're talking about the violence that all politics ultimately comes down to, and appear to us as an essentially beneficent response to a legitimate global health crisis, or a climate change crisis, or a racism crisis, or whatever other global crises Global Cap thinks will terrorize the masses into mindless, order-following hysteria. Now, this pathologism, this pathologization of totalitarianism and the political or ideological conflict we've been engaged in for the past 20 months is the most significant difference between new normal totalitarianism and 20th century totalitarianism. The entire global capitalist apparatus, in other words, corporations, governments, supranational entities, the corporate state and state media, academia, etc., has been put into service to achieve this objective. We need to come to terms with this fact. We do, not the new normals, us. Think about what he's suggesting here. This is not so much about trying to wake up the sheep. Some people are very comfortable in whatever, you know, whatever mindset they're, they're currently lodged. And if you look around and you say, but there's not very many of us. In fact, there's, 
there's a really tiny amount of us that actually are paying attention and see what's happening here. You're right. And that seems daunting. But you're not going to change the minds of people who've come detached from reality. What you are going to need to do, though, is uh, learn to network with, strengthen, and encourage the lions among us. C.J. Hopkins says, Global Cap is on the verge of remaking society into a smiley, happy, pathologized, totalitarian dystopia where they can mandate experimental genetic therapies and any other type of therapies they want and force us to show our compliance papers to go about the most basic aspects of life. This remaking of society is violent. It's being carried out by force with violence and the ever-present threat of violence. And he says we need to face that and act accordingly. So he says, for instance, here in New Normal Germany, if you try to go grocery shopping without a medical-looking mask, armed police will remove you from the premises. And he says, and I'm saying this from personal experience. In New Normal Australia, if you go to synagogue, the media will be alerted and police will surround you. In Germany, Australia, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Belgium, and many other countries, if you exercise your right to assemble and protest, the police will hose you down with water cannons, shoot you with rubber bullets, and sometimes real bullets, spray toxic agents into your eyes, and just generally beat the crap out of you, and so on. Now, he says, those of us fighting for our rights and opposing this pathologized totalitarianism are too familiar with the reality of its violence and the hatred it has fomented in the new normal masses. We experience it on a daily basis. We feel it every time we're forced to wear a mask and when some official or some waiter demands to see our papers. We feel it when we're threatened by our government, when we're gaslighted and demonized by the media, by doctors, celebrities, random strangers, by our colleagues, families, and, and family members and friends. And I love that he, at this point in the article, he includes two screenshots of Keith Olbermann standing on his apartment balcony with, you know, Central Park behind him, ranting, they're afraid, they're afraid, you know, just the the maniacal look in his eyes. And he says, "We we recognize the look in their eyes and we remember where it comes from and what it leads to. It isn't just ignorance, mass hysteria, confusion, or an overreaction or fear. Okay, yes, he says, it's all of those things, but it's also textbook totalitarianism, notwithstanding the new pathologized twist. Totalitarianism 101. And C.J. Hopkins' advice is to look it in the eye and act accordingly. Now, that's going to take some courage on your part and my part. So I I hope it doesn't come off as flip, you know, that, well, you know, it's really easy. You just got to stand up and be a man like me. Yeah, you know, look at me here. I'll flex my arms for you. It's scary. And it's scary from the standpoint not only that somebody might confront you or somebody might say something or somebody might, you know, insist you put on the mask or you toe this line or whatever. It's scary because you may have to stand alone against the crowd. And that is not a fun place to be. And I assume that when you're making that stand, you're doing so with as much love and meekness as you can muster. Bearers of the truth have to get used to standing, you know, firmly but gently for the truth. But man, do we need people who understand why they're standing up and who will not yield another inch. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, an encouragement here to please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'm very encouraged when I see the uh, growing number of subscriptions. Uh, people, It doesn't cost you anything to subscribe, but if you subscribe, I will gladly shoot a copy of the uh, show notes to you every time I publish them, and then you can check them out at your leisure. You know, I mean, whether you're listening on the radio, whether you're listening on one of the many streaming networks, whether you catch the podcast of this program... I appreciate the fact that you are listening, first and foremost. I never take my listeners for granted. But I know that uh, some people want to dig deeper. Some people want to actually flesh out these topics. And, uh, and the articles that I provide are a great starting point to that greater knowledge. This isn't about you're going to be in a complete agreement with me. We're going to march in lockstep. We may still agree on some things or disagree on some things. But I will do my level best to provide you with the best most credible and principled information, i.e. nonpartisan or sensationalized information that I can find. It's what I do. And I'm very happy to do it. So you ready for some good news? Okay, I thought I thought I would I would share some good news so you don't uh, after all the pathologized totalitarianism, some people may be hanging their heads going, "Oh boy. Whew, this is much more uphill than I thought." So, even though it feels like things are hopelessly stacked against those of us willing to stand for individual rights, Joanna Miller has an excellent article about small victories for individual freedom that we might have missed. This is published on theorganicprepper.com. And she says, uh, look, most of us have had a hell of a past two years. Between inflation, job uncertainty, riots, depending on where you live, and the stress and mental health issues that come along with all of those things, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But right now, She says, I think it's time to look at some small, underreported victories for individual rights. Now, she offers this disclaimer. She says, first of all, let me say, this article's not about vaccination itself. I see no problems with informed, consenting adults trying out new medical treatments. But she says, my big issues are the sweeping mandates and the destruction of privacy regarding medical decisions. So Joanna Miller says, I had to visit, I had a family, I had family visit in California recently and they had to present their vaccination verification to enter any building in LA. In Denver, many venues are starting to require proof of vaccination upon entry. And she asks, what's next? Are we going to have to start getting weighed and proving we aren't obese because obesity correlates with all other kinds of diseases? In fact, uh, the Organic Prepper posted a satirical article about just this topic recently. Are we going to have to reveal our sexual histories? When we stop viewing each other as brothers and sisters of Mother Earth and start judging each other primarily on how sick we think another person will make us, we are othering. And Daisy Luther, who is the Organic Prepper, has actually written a lot about where that leads. Now, Joanna Miller says, I don't want to speculate too wildly about the CDC's endgame here. However, I will point out that on December 20th, or I'm sorry, December 2nd of 2020, Dr. Fauci said in an interview with Fox News that a 70% fully vaccinated population would lead to herd immunity. And a few weeks later, he said herd immunity would require 85 to 90%. Then he admitted he really has no idea what it would take to achieve herd immunity. 
But we've gone from, well, let's get a lot of people vaccinated to everyone needs a shot. If you protest, you lose your job. Now, she says, I know the vaccines are wildly profitable for pharmaceutical companies. And I know that pharmaceutical companies donate generously to both political parties. So draw your own conclusions. But regardless of motive, the push is on right now. And there's an incredible amount of money and power pushing to get every American of every health condition and religious belief vaccinated. And while many scoffed about the very idea of these kind of manipulations just a year ago, it's all happening. The overwhelming majority of working adults are being forced to choose between their careers and their bodily autonomy. Many parents, she says, myself included, are deeply concerned about the coming mandates for school and sports. Now, fortunately, this push to override perfectly reasonable concerns about new medical technology is not going as smoothly as some might have hoped. On November 1st, a Cook County judge granted Chicago's police department a small reprieve in their battle against vaccine mandates. Chicago PD obtained a temporary restraining order against the city of Chicago. The city cannot enforce any mandates until they complete arbitration with the police union. In Los Angeles County, Sheriff Villanueva said in a press conference, and actually multiple press conferences, he will not enforce the county's reporting mandates because he's already shorthanded which would only worsen staffing problems. And it isn't just police departments that are pushing back. The private sector has had a lot to say about these oppressive federal mandates as well. Angela Phillips, the CEO of the Phillips Manufacturing and Tower Company, wrote an excellent letter detailing the mandate's effect on her company of 104 employees. In a nutshell, she is challenging OSHA's vaccine mandate in court. Of her 104 employees, 17 are willing to lose their jobs rather than be vaccinated. And the cost to retrain skilled laborers would be prohibitive, assuming she could even find skilled workers right now. Qualified airline pilots aren't easy to replace either. According to the pilots, Southwest's cancellation of 27% of their flights on October 10th, while officially blamed on the weather, had more to do with its vaccination reporting policies. Delta Airlines, by contrast, refused to enforce a mandate and sports a 90-plus percent vaccination rate anyway. Proving that mandates are often superfluous to meet a vaccination rate that Fauci claimed in December 2020 would lead us to herd immunity. And finally, on November 6th, a three-judge panel ruled that the federal order mandating that all companies with more than 100 employees require vaccination was unconstitutional. Now, while this declaration of unconstitutionality applies to private employers in general, healthcare workers receive different treatment. They do not have the option of regular testing. Faced with the likelihood of a mass exodus of healthcare employees, the attorneys general of 10 states, Missouri, Nebraska, Alaska, Arkansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Kansas, Wyoming, and New Hampshire, sued President Biden on November 10th. Among other things, this coalition of attorneys general is pointing out that the mandate is unconstitutional because compulsory vaccination power has always rested with the states. Now, pushback is occurring in other countries as well. For example, both Quebec and Ontario and Canada were forced to rescind their vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. Too many workers threatened to quit. The government had to back down. In Britain, officials estimate they're about to lose 123,000 healthcare workers to their reporting requirements. 
England alone has had 140,000 people on a wait list for surgeries, such as knee and hip replacements. Losing over 100,000 staff will be disastrous. Now, so far, England and Northern Ireland are not backing down, but Wales and Scotland have announced they will not be mandating vaccination for healthcare workers. So who are the ones fighting the mandates the hardest? Well, it's no coincidence the workers who never stopped during the pandemic are the ones fighting this, and it's not out of selfishness. Police officers, pilots, and nurses were exposed to germs that the laptop class has been avoiding for the past two years. Many of them have already had COVID and have developed natural immunity which proves to be more robust and durable than any of the vaccines on the market. They already risked their necks with the disease, doing jobs they cannot do from home. So why should they now have to take chances with a scantily tested vaccine that will not benefit them in any way? These workers are the ones we depend on most to keep us alive. Now, she says, during the strictest part of the lockdown, I had to go both to Denver, full of professionals, and up to Greeley, primarily oil and gas and agricultural services, multiple times. And the difference was striking. Denver was silent. She says, I've joked with other people that I know that were out there driving during lockdown about how much I miss quarantine traffic, but I wouldn't want to have lived there. You weren't allowed to leave your home unless you were walking a dog. The whole city was basically on house arrest. Greeley, by contrast, looked normal except that many people driving cattle trucks had their children with them because the schools were closed and the working class was stuck bringing their kids to work. Now She says, because I mostly homeschool, I was able to take in one child of a friend who works in an industrial warehouse. But my friend told me that sometimes her co-workers would have to bring their kids to work with them in a non-climate-controlled industrial warehouse, which of course is totally illegal. But what the heck are people supposed to do? Children don't disappear because teachers won't go to work. Look, the bottom line is, peaceful pushback is spreading. And the small victories that Joanna Miller has has listed here lighten her day and probably should lighten yours as well. She says, I'm completely aware that nothing is settled and that the powers that that be seem hell-bent on getting rid of any kind of personal autonomy that we have, and they probably have plenty of tricks left. But she says, I think stalling and dragging things out is key for those of us who still value freedom. The Founding Fathers envisioned this nation as one of independent farmers and craftsmen, not technocrats and sheeple. So take comfort in knowing that we are stronger when we fight together. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's a great article and hopefully will lift your spirits. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, my goal here isn't to get you all wired up and angry and dead certain about who or what you're against. No, my uh, my goal here is to share with you uh, as best I can the truth as I'm able to understand it and as I'm able to find it, and then to let you do with that information as you will. But at the end of the day, you should be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than what you're against. 
So if that's something that resonates with you, if you understand truth isn't something handed down to you by someone in authority, but something that you have to pursue for yourself, I think you're going to find a lot of value within this program. I've got show notes. I've got sponsors. Let me just give you a quick mention of who those sponsors are so you'll know that uh, they deserve a little bit of your love. Or if you want to just send them a note and tell them, hey, thanks for uh, making Brian's uh, existence possible. Okay, the show possible. They include great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, GovernYourIncome.com, SolarPatriots.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. So I want to take a quick look at some geopolitical stuff here for a moment. And um, I've been trying to think of a nice way to, to say this just because I don't want this to sound like, oh, this is, this is getting scary, but... I think that there is a historical pattern that when domestic troubles begin to pile up at home, politicians historically have used war as a distraction to help keep the populace in line. Now, Pat Buchanan has an excellent column questioning the wisdom of U.S. officials who are playing with fire on Russia's borders. And he wonders where it will lead us. So here's a good down and dirty recap of what's happening in the geopolitical sense and let's try to make some sense out of it here. Pat Buchanan says Belarusian autocrat Alexander Lukashenko has cleared out the encampment at his border crossing into Poland, where thousands of Middle Eastern migrants had been living in squalor. Last week, that border crossing was the site of clashes between asylum seekers trying to push through the razor wire and Polish troops resisting with water cannons. So while the crisis between Warsaw and Minsk has not ended, it appears to have been temporarily eased. But he says behind the clash was the recent election in Belarus that the European Union saw as fraudulent and Lukashenko's interception of a commercial airliner to kidnap and imprison a critical journalist. Lukashenko brought in the migrants from the Mideast and moved them to the border, forcing the Poles to deploy security forces to block their entry. Lukashenko's actions were in retaliation for Poland's support of the sanctions the EU had imposed on Belarus. So it was last week... A NATO ally, Poland, had a confrontation with a close ally of Vladimir Putin's Russia, which could have resulted in a shooting war that could have drawn in Russia and the United States. Buchanan says while Belarus, perhaps at Putin's insistence, has pulled the migrants back from the border and eased this crisis, the same cannot be said of the crisis developing around Ukraine. For days now, U.S. officials have been warning that the 100,000 Russian troops stationed near the borders of Ukraine may be preparing for an invasion. As Ukraine is not a NATO ally, the U.S. is under no obligation to come to to Kiev's defense. But any Russian invasion to expand the share of Ukraine it now controls could produce a crisis more serious than Putin's annexation of Crimea or support for the separatists in the Donbass. For Putin, the situation in the Black Sea, where U.S. warships and warplanes lead NATO vessels on regular visitations, must truly stick in the craw. When Putin was a KGB officer in the last days of the Soviet Empire, Romania and Bulgaria on the Black Sea were Warsaw Pact allies. Ukraine, Georgia, and Armenia on the Black Sea were, like Russia itself, Soviet republics of the USSR. NATO Turkey alone accepted the Black Sea was a Soviet lake. And today, 
Romania and Bulgaria are NATO allies of the United States. Ukraine and Georgia, having broken free of the USSR at the end of the Cold War, are independent nations that look to Europe, not to Moscow. Now, the goal of both is to become NATO allies under the protection of the U.S. and its nuclear umbrella. So here's another consideration. Ukraine and Russia have historic ties, religious, ethnic, and cultural, that go back a thousand years. What Putin sees in Russia's loss of Ukraine and Kiev's uh, alignment with the U.S. and the West was what Americans of Abraham Lincoln's generation saw when France exploited our preoccupation with the Civil War to turn Mexico into a subject nation of the French Empire. He says, consider, every nation involved in the migrant crisis on the Polish border and the gathering crisis around Ukraine was either a Soviet republic or a Warsaw Pact member during the Cold War, when Putin was a KGB officer. All four nations... Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus were, not so long ago, vital interests of Moscow. And none had ever been a vital interest to the distant United States. And no U.S. Cold War president ever thought so. Dwight Eisenhower did not intervene to save the Hungarian Revolution when it was crushed by Soviet tanks. John F. Kennedy did not tear down the Berlin Wall as it was going up. Lyndon B. Johnson did not intervene to stop Warsaw Pact armies from invading Czechoslovakia to crush the Prague Spring. Ronald Reagan did not put the Polish communist regime in default on its huge unpaid debt when it crushed solidarity. So who rules in Minsk has never been a vital interest of the United States. Nor has the location of the Russia-Ukraine border or the political orientation of the regime that rules in Kiev. Avoiding a war with Russia that could go nuclear, however, has always been a vital strategic interest, especially since Moscow acquired nuclear weapons. Every American president has known that. And avoidance of war with the United States has been a guiding principle of Russian foreign policy from Stalin to Putin. No political dispute in the east of Europe alters these realities. So Pat Buchanan writes, a NATO alliance built around Article 5, the declaration that a Russian attack on any one of the 30 nations will be regarded as an attack on the United States and answered by military action by the United States, is an anachronistic pledge that belongs to a dead era. After all, the only war that NATO, the most successful alliance in history, ever fought, Afghanistan, it lost and left after 20 years. Buchanan says, let the nations of Eastern Europe solve their problems without the constant intervention of the United States. Given the disastrous record of the neocon wars of the 21st century, the U.S. facing every new crisis ought to ask itself before acting, why is this quarrel any of our business? Now, I share this this column from Pat Buchanan with you with the full understanding that, yeah, he's calling for non-interventionism. And I suspect there are still some stubborn holdouts, you know, the neoconservatives who believe that, hey, 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 there's no such thing as a bad war. If the U.S. is flexing its muscles, by gosh, it's sending a a message to the world. And I agree, it is sending a message to the world, but I don't think it's the message that you think it's sending. We are strong. We are united. We are invincible. We cannot be resisted. In fact, ironically, it was Pat Buchanan who, who made the analogy clear back in 2000. Okay, so this was pre-9-11. He warned 
about this role of interventionism and how how can we fail to see that interventionism is the incubator of terrorist activity. He talked about the uh, bombings in uh, Kenya and in Tanzania, which took place in 1998, and said, you know, how could how could we fail to learn the lesson from what we see here? And then he likened the U.S. to a policeman. He goes, you know, the U.S. can either be a nation that leads out or it can be the world's policeman who goes around night-sticking troublemakers until it finds itself in a bloody brawl that it cannot handle. In fact, I believe he asked the question at that time, will it take some cataclysmic atrocity on our own soil to awaken us to the going price of global gamesmanship? Now keep in mind, that was about a year or so before the 9-11 attacks. I know this irritates some people. And it's, it's, I, my goal here isn't to make them mad. My goal isn't to stick my finger in their eye and told you so. But there's a reason why the founding generation believed in having a strong enough army to defend ourselves or a strong enough military to defend ourselves without going out looking for monsters to destroy. You would think the message of freedom itself and the example of a free nation would be powerful and would be inspiring to the other countries of the world. And that doesn't mean that we can't help those that actually need help. It's just that there are so many ways besides sending tanks and sending ships and sending planes, you know, to to help them. So don't scare yourself, but do keep an eye on what's happening there in Eastern Europe. You know, with the troubles piling up here at home, it's not out of the realm of possibility that we might find ourselves involved in a war just to keep us distracted enough to take the heat off our politicians. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. When you need to get a mortgage, particularly if you are home shopping anywhere in the state of Utah, well, you need to know it's it's a very competitive real estate market. You got to have your financing squared away right now. This is why even even if you're not in the St. George area, but you're looking to secure a uh, traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, a VA loan, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the clout, and the experience to get you the loan you need without delay. Call her at 435-703-4522. There is an email link in my show notes at com. You can also stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, I want to give you some encouragement This is going to seem a little bit backwards in how we do it, but if you are waiting for the right time to take a stand, you know, when it's safe, when everybody will agree, yes, bravo, this is the right time, and they'll applaud you and and cheer you for standing, well, here's an unpopular truth. The right time will never come. Paul Rosenberg has some very sage advice regarding the decision to take action and how it doesn't have to be a perfect plan to still make an appreciable difference. He says, lots of good people are frustrated with the world. I understand that only too well. They are furthermore eager for the world to improve, and I respect that a great deal. 
But he says their problem arises, however, when right on the heels of their desires, they ask the question, what should I do? And he says, and that's when the wheels fall off. Because all the popular answers are wrong. Now, he says the world is full of people who are glad to tell you what to do. They have carefully thought out arguments as to why their plan is the right one and everyone else's is wrong. They'll encourage you to commit to them. They'll try to surround you with people who've already chosen their plan. If you join, you'll get lots of pats on the back and assurances that you are a good person. But he says all of those ways are wrong. They offer you fast, cheap self-esteem. They offer you a fast track to feeling useful, important, and wanted. All you have to do is join their very pleasant crowd. But he says, let me make this very clear. There is no blueprint for freedom. There will be no great plan to follow. And people who say they have such a thing, while they may be well-meaning, bright, and even respectable, are moving in the wrong direction. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I truly don't mean to criticize here. We've all made our mistakes, but here's the core of the issue. If we want a world that is safe for individuals, then we'll have to create it as individuals, not as groups. Groups beget their own kind. Individuals beget after their own kind. Now, he says, I'm not the first person to decide this, by the way. This is what Albert Schweitzer had to say on the subject many years ago. He said, the unnatural way of spreading ideas must be opposed by the natural one, which goes from man to man and relies solely on the truth of the thoughts and the hearer's receptiveness for new truth. End quote. So following someone else's plan is the easy way because that saves us from responsibility. It allows us to deflect the blame at least a little if we're later found out to be wrong. But he says, this easy way is a wrong way. And there's a great line from Stephen Stills' song, The Southern Cross, that goes like this. And we never failed to fail. It was the easiest thing to do. Paul Rosenberg says it will always be the easiest thing to go downward into servitude. That's the current condition of the world, with its dominance-obsessed and status-worshipping inertia. He says, you can go downward quickly by handing your will to the status quo, or you can go slowly by standing still. But until you act solely upon your own judgment, you're not going to go upward. Now, you may be thinking, wait, are you, what, are you saying? He says, yes, I'm saying you have to make your decision all alone. And that you have to raise the courage to start acting upon it by yourself with no leader telling you the best choice, with no famous author guiding you, and with no authority sanctifying the path for you. You have to choose all by yourself. And you have to face all the fears that hold you back from stepping out. You'll have to push past them. You'll have to make your own legs start walking. He says, that, my friends, is the price of progress. And we each have to pay it or not pay it alone. So we should act without a plan? Emphatically, yes, says Paul Rosenberg. The central issue here is not following a plan, but dragging ourselves out of stasis and taking some kind of initiative. So unless you're making some kind of wild, violent choice, almost any choice you make is a good one. He says your central necessity is to unfreeze yourself and start moving. Once you're in motion, then it's easy to unfreeze yourself and to to correct your course. 
But if you never move, you'll just keep sliding down the majority's path regardless of how much you complain. Now, in our time, most of the good people in the world remain motionless. We complain about our local fiefdoms, abuses, of course, but that's about all. That's the seduction of democracy. You see, it magically turns complaints into progress. Except that the magic of democracy never really shows up. Still, it's the easiest thing to do, so we complain and we wait, but we don't act. But listen to this. He says again, there's never going to be a perfect plan. There's never going to be a right time. If you wait for them, you will wait forever. So pick a spot and start. And these are just a few of the suggestions. He says, you probably already have choices in mind. It could be getting involved with things like Bitcoin, homeschool, 3D printing, intentional communities, temporary autonomous zones. Okay, not like Chaz up in Seattle, but you get the picture. Peaceful ones, agorism, becoming a perpetual traveler or something else. The bottom line is get moving. Your central necessity is to face the fear and act anyway. But he says, if you want to know what my favorite choice is, here it is. Sit at a bus stop and talk to people. You can do that at almost any time and any place. Now, he asks the question, what, or who happens to whom? In other words, who acts and who is acted upon? Paul Rosenberg says, as an old co-worker of mine used to say, he who hesitates is lost. If you wait, you'll be acted upon. Then you'll have to reform your plan, you'll hesitate again, you'll be acted upon again, over and over, till you're too old to do much of anything. So as scary as it may sound, the right time never comes. Either we let the world happen to us, or we transcend our fears, and we happen to the world. So he says, I propose a simple motto for people who actually give a damn, and it is, the world doesn't happen to us, we happen to the world. Now, maybe I'm naive for thinking that uh, that's really solid advice, but it strikes me as true. And the people I see who are making a difference, who are growing into whatever it was that God created them to become, are the people who didn't wait for permission. I think I'm going to give a quick shout out here. I'm going to toot the horn uh, for my friend Eric Mutsos. When I met Eric back in 2015, he was a recently uh, pushed out of his job Salt Lake City police officer. Let go because he was deemed intolerant because he did not want to perform motorcycle maneuvers in the gay pride parade. That's quite a setback, and it was a very prestigious position that was taken from him, and he was demonized and unfairly tarred and feathered figuratively in the media. But as I've been friends with Eric over the the last few years and watched him grow into uh, one of the strongest and most capable voices for freedom, particularly in the face of the new normal that's being foisted upon us under the guise of protecting us from COVID, it's worth noting he didn't wait for somebody to tell him, Eric, it's okay for you to step forward and do this. And in his own way, sometimes imperfectly, he's having real impact can't fault him for that it's a great example you don't need to be eric you need to be you but you've got to decide this is worth my action this is worth the investment of my time and maybe sticking my neck out this is the brian hyde show 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I have uh, I have a couple of different articles here that uh, these are the the last one I'm going to share with you is very hard hitting because we're going to talk about a couple of terms that uh, are not really familiar to a lot of people. You don't you don't use words like kulak or uh, holodomor, you know, in your day to day conversation. But once you understand what those terms are, you may actually start to recognize. Hey, wait a minute, this is. This is something that is is being forced on us, or we're we're reinventing those terms, albeit in in kind of an Americanized fashion. It's an unpleasant thought. We'll explain that more in just a few moments. Right now, I I just want to share an article here that illustrates how quickly and how shocking it is to see the governments around the world working to implement some form of COVID apartheid. Austria right now and Australia are both competing for who can do the most outrageous, you know, official actions in the name of fighting a virus that doesn't care about their actions. Joseph Kolb explains the cruel lesson that we can learn from Austria's COVID vaccine insanity. He also explains why it's more important than ever that we stand firm in defense of our right to informed consent. Joseph Kolf says, back in the late 1990s, I once complained about the quality of tap water to my German colleagues in Bonn, Germany. It was full of caulk. Disgusting. But they lectured me that the water was great and that it was full of caulk because it had to be reclaimed. Otherwise, we would run out of water. Now, he says, my mocking reaction is that caulk is not water. And we were just a few miles from the massive Rhine River. He says, making that observation didn't endear me to my colleagues. Everybody knew that everything German was world-class except me, apparently. He says, I had an old Russian friend in Stuttgart back then with whom I often discussed cultural misunderstandings. She told me about an old anti-Jewish joke in Russia about tap water. If there's no tap water, the Jews drank it all. The Jews were always a good target to deflect blame for the massive failures of European societies and their Caesars, Sars, and Kaisers. Now, my old friend had immigrated to Germany as a Jewish retiree refugee about the same time I got a job there. And he says she loved Germany, but she, sage that she was, always warned me, her so-called adopted non-Jewish son, that the political system and the human condition had not changed in Germany as much as everybody thought. Memories of Germany came back to me when I recently read that Austria wants to remove the unvaccinated from society. Their crime? Killing the vaccinated with the disease that the vaccines protect the vaccinated from. That sounds about as logical as the tap water joke, right? I've not yet read that they want to kill anyone. But he says, I'm assuming they will remove them from society concentrated in unvaccinated camps, either until they give in or have the jab forced on them. Will Austria's unvaccinated have to hide in secret compartments in private homes until the insanity has run its course? I got to say that a statement like that even a year ago would have caused some people to roll their eyes and, oh boy, really, we're going to compare this to the Holocaust? After watching what has unrolled over the last year, though, I think that's a fair question. If you're disallowed the ability to legally participate in society because you don't have the right papers, the right credentials, yeah, I think I think we may be headed in a very dark direction. 
Now, Charles Kolf says the, the details of what I read made it sound as if the extreme measures in Austria were motivated more by a desire to hide the previous failures of the Austrian Kaiser's COVID policies than to protect the people. As these COVID mandates start to look more like Frankenstein experiments gone wrong, those who mandated them will be looking for scapegoats. Not unlike what happened with the failed economic management of the socialist governments in the 1930s, Austria and Germany. So he talks about how an old American friend blames me for the COVID crisis. And Joseph Kolb says, look, the reason the modern, Ameri- the modern Austrian Kaisers and American Kaisers, Biden and Fauci, can get away with increasing levels of COVID extremism is that many, perhaps a majority of good Austrians and good Americans, support such measures. He says, I was rudely reminded of this during a recent phone call with an old American friend. I told her I would have to leave my job on January 4th because of Biden's COVID mandate. Now, he says, I expected sympathy, but she said nothing. The silence was her way of saying I deserved to lose my job because the unvaccinated, like me, I had COVID, are responsible for the deaths of so many to COVID. Not her lifelong obesity or her husband's lifelong smoking habit that resulted in a debilitating stroke in his mid-50s. In her little Alice in Wonderland world, the deep state can do no wrong. And he asks, why? The deep state was her employer and allowed her to retire at 55 with full pay and benefits. Was she a firefighter, a policewoman? No, she was a unionized teacher in a government-run school, a job that's so tough you get to retire at 55. And her retirement benefits are fantastic. She even put her husband on her insurance. She fully supports the deep state, not the deplorable taxpayers, that has given her all she has. And when all this COVID stuff started, she rebuked me for suggesting that America's highest paid bureaucrat, Kaiser Fauci, had created COVID by financing gain-of-function research in Chinese Communist Party bioweapons labs. She said, I don't want to hear anything bad about my Fauci. Now, he says she'll never change her attitude about Fauci. She put her faith in and staked her reputation on the deep state and will steadfastly insist that if things go wrong, then it's not the Kaiser's fault. This mentality served her well throughout her life as a unionized government employee. She hated Trump, of course, because he was a threat to the deep state teachers union she belonged to. She says it's because Trump was such a crude man. But she sees nothing wrong with whatsoever with anything Joe Biden or his family have done or with the Democratic Party's assaults on the pillars of the American way of life, which, of course, she's still emphatically against, but still not against the Democrat Party. So where are are we all heading? Historians often ask the question, why did most Germans follow Hitler, when resisting would have uh, involved very little personal risk? Well, genius historians may be because Adolf, the son of a successful Austrian government official, promised to maintain the German deep state, the breadwinner for the vast army of German government employees and a lot of private German companies that depended on the deep state, like munitions factories. And he convinced a critical mass of German deplorables to go along with his bizarre theories about the victimhood of the master race at the hands of inferior races. It's about as logical as vaccines that don't vaccinate, enabling professional and social isolation of anyone who questioned the checked facts. One, re- one reason for the race now to vax as many people as possible 
is to isolate those who don't want to, quote, follow the science. Heretics like me, who never had a problem with eating, not injecting thoroughly tested, genetically modified foods, but have a really big problem with injecting experimental genetic treatments into my own body. Now, Joseph Kolf says, look, my comparisons to 1930s Germany may be stretching things, but don't underestimate where this could all lead. A lot of people, like my American friend, will support anyone who promises to save them from COVID, as long as those retirement checks keep coming in on time. And if the vaccines cause some as-yet-unknown health problems, then the Kaisers and their bureaucratic armies will go to any length to deflect blame and maintain power. Again, my friend would totally support them, as long as those retirement checks come in on time. So that means escalating failed policies. Fauci recently stated children six months to five years could be eligible for COVID-19 vaccination by spring. And, of course, finding the right scapegoats. Now, he says, during our 45-year friendship, I have, out of polite respect, never challenged the Alice in Wonderland political views of my American friend. But during our last phone call, I saw a side of her that I had never seen before. COVID has changed our world and forced us to reevaluate our cherished notions of the exceptional nature of those in the land of the free and the home of the brave. He says, my adoptive Jewish mother always stressed the importance of understanding the real motivations of people, never to underestimate what they are capable of. Well, this current situation is being forced on us by all of those getting rich and powerful thanks to the vaccines. But this COVID storm will sooner or later pass. When humanity first encountered cold and flu viruses, it must have been a lot worse than COVID. COVID will run its course and slowly disappear. Until then, he says, stand firm. Pretty good stuff. Got a link to the article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Look, the goal here is not to make you fearful. And I apologize if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, jabbing that nerve that, that triggers a fear response. I do hope, though, that this is at least giving you some inkling of what is at stake and hopefully encouraging you and, and giving you the, the necessary kick in the seat of the pants to stand firm, hold your ground, and don't give in, no matter how convenient or how much pain you may be able to avoid. we got to stand firm on this one. There's no turning back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to send out some love in the direction of the uh, Sewing Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. That would be uh, Teresa and Eric Alsop. It's a family-owned business. Kind of a neat history there, too, if you're familiar with the Sewing Quilting Center. It's an authorized dealer for brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, and handy quilter long arm quilting machines. Now, this may sound like a foreign language to you, but trust me, the people who are into quilting, who are into sewing, who are into embroidery, they're salivating as I'm saying those names. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, those are great. And if you just need to know this. If you are into any of these hobbies, sewing is, is one of the, the biggest ones out there. 
Sewing Quilting Center in St. George is there to not only sell you the machines, train you on how to use them. They can fix them if you need to, to have them serviced. And, of course, they sell fabric, superior thread, also a cuddle. That's a great, uh, that's a great blanket fabric. Very uh, comparable to minky, if you're familiar with that term. And right now you can uh, save uh, 35% for the month of November on cuddle fabric for blankets. Oh, want to mention, too, the Long Arms by Handy Quilter on sale for Christmas. You can pick up a new Moxie for $4,995 with a setup, with setup and training available. Just go to the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, click on Sewing and Quilting Center, let them know that this message reached your ears. So the terms kulak and holodomor are going to be unfamiliar to a lot of Americans. In fact, only those who've really studied enough history to know about Stalin's decision to starve to death millions of Ukrainians in the 1920s and 30s will actually know what those terms mean. And there's a great article here from Revolver.News. Are you ready to be an American kulak? Now this is, look, I, I'm going to tell you right up front, this one, this, this is a little bit scary. But I want you to hear out what uh, this article has to say, and then you make up your own mind whether this, this is rooted in reality and deserves your attention or not. I'm just asking you to consider it. I don't know the name of the author. I'm not seeing it listed here, but uh, it's a pretty comprehensive article. Lots of uh, lots of documentation. I won't have time to cover all of this, but I will tell you that uh, it's worth your time if you want to really delve into it. The article says, if one takes the ideologues who rule over America at their word, then the governing principles of this country's reigning regime are things like fairness, equality, diversity, or anti-racism. But of course, anybody with a brain today isn't taking America's rulers at their word. It's obvious and has been for many years now, there is no spirit of fairness or anti-racism in the heart of their ideology. Instead, the spirit at the heart of America's leadership is bitter, envious, resentful, and hateful. Who is it hateful toward? You know who. The modern American regime is built on explicit, institutionalized hostility to the people who most resemble the great Americans of the past. It is anti-white, anti-male, anti-Christian, anti-rural, anti-middle class. And the more of these traits a person has, the more worthy of hate they become. The more the globalist American empire decays and squanders the inheritance it was given, the more bile and hatred it directs against those who symbolize what came before. But those on the receiving end of this new discriminatory regime, regime rather, may not appreciate its full scope or the ultimate fate that the globalist American empire has planned for them. They may see recent anti-white animus as a temporary spell or a limited affair that can be waited out. Well, they are wrong. America's shrinking white middle class are the target of an ever-intensifying cycle whose mechanics are ripped straight from another oppressive regime, the Soviet Union of the 1920s and 30s. The white American middle class have become America's kulaks. Blamed for every problem, vilified for every success, deserving of every punishment. Their destruction has become a fundamental goal of American life. Now, what was a kulak? 
Well, the term comes from Russian, and like so many other words popularized by a radical left regime, the definition was anything but stable. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn explained a half century ago in the Gulag Archipelago, in Russian, a kulak is a miserly, dishonest rural trader who grows rich not by his own labor, but through someone else's, through usury and operating as a middleman. In every locality, even before the revolution, such kulaks could be numbered on one's fingers. And the revolution totally destroyed their basis of activity. Subsequently, after 1917, by a transfer of meaning, the name Kulakhigan began to be applied in an official and propaganda literature once it moved to general usage to all those who in any way hired workers, even if it was only temporary or they were temporarily short of working hands in their own families. Now, the inflation of this scathing term kulak proceeded relentlessly, and by 1930, all strong peasants in general were being so-called. All peasants strong in management, strong in work, or merely strong in convictions. The term kulak was used to smash the strength of the peasantry. And now, these peasants, whose bread grain had fed Russia in 1928, were hastily uprooted by local good-for-nothings and city people sent in from the outside. Like raging beasts abandoning every concept of humanity, abandoning all humane principles which had evolved through the millennia, they begin to round up the very best farmers and their families and to drive them, stripped of their possessions, naked into the northern wastes, into the tundra and the taiga. When he talks about the local good-for-nothings and the city people sent in from the outside, I'm sorry, I think about the, the current battles going on with many of our school boards. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? So, back to the article. In short, kulaks were the catch-all class enemy for the Bolshevik regime. Peasant uprisings or kulak revolts because it was inconceivable that ordinary peasants might rebel against the workers' paradise. And any ordinary civilians who opposed agricultural collectivization or were simply seen as a threat to local leaders were apt to be branded kulaks or kulak enablers. Now, if you want to know what the consequences of being a kulak were, all you have to do is look at uh, Lenin's hanging order of 1918. Quote, Comrades, the revolt by the five kulak volosts must be suppressed without mercy. The interest of the entire revolution demands this because we now have before us our final decisive battle with the kulaks. We need to set an example. Number one, you need to hang without fail so that the public sees at least 100 notorious kulaks, the rich and the bloodsuckers. Number two, publish their names. Number three, take away all of their grain. Number four, execute the hostages in accordance with yesterday's telegram. This needs to be accomplished in such a way that people for hundreds of miles will see, tremble, know, and scream out, let's choke and strangle those blood-sucking kulaks. Telegraph us acknowledging receipt and execution of this, yours, Lenin. P.S. Use your toughest people for this. Can you see something like that ever, you know, being put forth as a, as a missive in our day? You know, hey, take care of those stubborn anti-vaxxers. The mentality is there. Even if the actions aren't as murderous as what Lenin was calling for, that's the direction we are being taken. Now, after the Civil War, the purge of the Kulaks paused but in 1928, Joseph Stalin reignited the persecution with a furious campaign of de 
State propaganda organs collectively denounced the Kulaks as a class deserving of annihilation, and all the while the definition kept expanding. Now, this is some pretty intense stuff here. By 1930, a kulak was defined as anybody who used hired labor, owned a mill or other processing equipment, rented land, engaged in money lending, or otherwise collected income through non-labor sources. Kulaks were accused of sabotaging the Soviet government by withholding grain from the market and otherwise being the source of the state's problems. So, today, who is the American kulak? Well, like in the USSR, that definition's loose and ever-expanding. Some of the traits that push one toward kulakdom are obvious, superficial markers like being white and male. But other kulak traits are less immediately obvious. These are the social markers of kulakdom, being a small business owner, being the married parent of young children, being a heritage American descended from those who sailed on the Mayflower, signed the Declaration of Independence, or fought in the Civil War. There's much more to this article. I'm going to let you discover it on your own. But uh, the conclusion here is, look, American kulaks must realize that the hatred brought against them will not dissipate as the ruling elite's policies fail. Instead, hatred will intensify, and every year of failure simply shows that America's bedrock of white male privilege is deeper and more pervasive than previously imagined. That means new angles of attack will be found, new discriminatory laws imposed to deny the Kulak opportunity to make him poorer, more atomized, more addicted. The American Kulak must realize that this struggle can only end in two ways. Either he'll be torn down completely or he will be dis- either the regime will be torn down or we will be destroyed in the process. Wow. This is the Brian Hyde show.